Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. I have a very special guest for the Other Hand podcast today, a man called Ben Watts. In a case of perhaps nominative determinism, he is an expert in the energy space. He is a currently a developer with a background across different firms, different parts of the energy space. He has much experience in various aspects of energy. And the reason for today's podcast is that Jim and I, in a previous pod, said something about energy pricing that I know you all find this extremely unlikely, but we got it wrong. And Ben very kindly, in a very nice email, put us right. And since then, we've been having a bit of a dialogue, Jim and I and Ben, about energy, given how topical it is and given the mistake that we made. And that led me to think that it would be very useful, certainly for me, and I hope for our listeners, that we do a deeper dive, given how topical all of this is. So I'll begin by just inviting Ben to say a few words about himself, and then I'll get into my reasonably long list of questions, which will start with that mistake that Jim and I made. So Ben, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Chris. First, it's great to be on this podcast. I worked in various guises for some big consultancies in London in the energy space. And then I became software developer, more of a kind of full stack developer. And for the last couple of years, I've been building some forecasting and analytical tools for renewables and power markets, that kind of thing. With recent event, I had a degree of interest from some 
much bigger companies. Avid follower of all things current affairs, which is uh, why I chanced upon your podcast. And of course, I forgot right at the very top of the show to say a big thank you to you for coming on the pod. So um, please accept my belated. When Jim and I were prattling on about energy pricing, we fell into the trap of believing what we'd read in the newspapers, which was that the profits tax that has been much in the news for so-called windfall revenues, particularly for renewable electricity generators, we thought was justified because we took a very simplistic view, it turns out, that although the price of electricity has gone through the roof, their cost of producing it on our simple logic didn't go through the roof. When the wind blows and the sun shines and the water flows, whichever way you get your renewable electricity, their costs of production, by and large, hadn't gone up. It was only as if you're an electricity producer using gas mostly, but obviously oil as well, would your costs have gone up. If you're looking at the electricity price that you're able to get for your output and you're getting it from a wind farm, hey, you must have been making out like bandits, was the conclusion. And therefore governments, not just in the UK and Ireland, but all around Europe, banging the windfall profits tax drum. And we said, well done. And you said, no. So tell us why we got it wrong. So how long have you got? Because Christmas isn't that far away, right? The, the biggest cost of a lot of kind of the funds that own a renewable project is, is you know, going to be leverage, debt, interest, right? Interest rates have gone up a lot. And there are a lot of the rest of their expenditure on kind of placement turbines or inverters imported from China or whatever. All those costs have gone up a lot. So even though they're kind of costs as a percentage of the price might be quite low. A lot of those things have gone up. But probably the, the kind of bigger reason why um, I think it, it's a bit of a fallacy is that a lot of renewable projects, when they're built, kind of sell their output forward over decades to somebody else. There are various different government subsidy or price fixing schemes that guarantee the price that renewable generators get. In the UK, there's the CFD program. In Ireland, there is an equivalent scheme, RESS. But effectively, the bill payer is the counterparty in that case. There might be inflation indexing of the cost that or the price that the, the renewable generators get, but the output sold forward. The other big example is kind of commercial PPAs, the power purchase agreement. And that tends to be big industrial retail telecoms companies that want to hedge their power costs for the next 10, 20 years. I think supermarkets with cloud data providers, AWS, GCP, people like that, they'll go, we'll buy the, the output of a solar or wind farm for the next 20 years and we can tick the net zero box and we can also you know fix a lot of our costs the intentions behind it are, are very decent very reasonable i would argue it's an example of long-term investment and markets working very well but going back to the windfall tax kind of idea it's a bit of a fallacy to think that there's somebody who's making out as a bandit as as, as the generator in reality the profits or the the kind of competitive advantage that exists from the PPA is probably more likely to exist as a small slither in the income statement of the supermarket or the utility or the cloud data provider like AWS than it is kind of with with the renewable generator. So I'm hearing you saying that that they, they aren't making windfall profits in the way that we were led to believe in the popular media. But the media were, in fact, I think, more or less following the steer that governments had given them. Why do you think that not just Jim Power and Chris Johns fell into this trap. Some will be, but some won't be. 
that that that's kind of the, the 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 difficulty here. Like there are a variety of different hedging strategies. There are wind farms that are owned by vertically integrated utility companies, the big names, EDF, RWE, Centrica, where there's kind of, to some degree, a natural hedge between the retail or the supply bit of the company and the upstream bit that, that owns the, the, the renewables. There are all sorts of other kind of contracts that exist, pension companies that own solar farms that sell the output to a utility company, like a PPA, I guess, that for 10, 20 years. There's, there's all sorts of different kind of contractual arrangements that go. And I think that what the politicians do is they spot potentially a big load of profit and they think, I want to try and capture some of that. And then they very quickly go rapidly start imposing taxes. The risk is you undermine investment going forward, particularly in renewables, um, at a time when it couldn't be more important. On the subject of windfall taxes and profit, this is something, profit, that we can measure if they're reported accurately. Presumably there is, in theory at least, some mechanisms say that company A, you were making profits of X pre the Russian invasion of Ukraine, pre the big rise in the gas price, pre the big rise in the electricity price. Now you're making profits of why, and we can be a wee bit more sophisticated than that and talk about, say, return on invested capital, that your return on capital prior to this was X, now it's Y, and we're going to call that a windfall gain. What I suspect you're going to tell me now, and I might be putting words in your mouth, please tell me if I am, is that it's the reporting of these profits are too opaque to enable us to be able to be that sophisticated. Is that right? You're probably right there, yeah. Um, I think it would be really hard. And, and, and to have fairness and consistency between the different companies. They've had 10 or 20 years in which they can structure contracts and do things as they want. To kind of throw them back into a straitjacket like that would be quite difficult. But it, but in principle, theoretically speaking as economists, yes, that, that, that would be the kind of direction that you'd, you'd want to go in. But that said, you know, things like the CFD auctions that I mentioned, those are a competitive tender. And those, the prices that you get out of out of those will be linked more to the cost of producing wind power rather than the cost of gas. Prices like that are kind of already following that calculation basis. I think the next question you might, your answer might be, please don't ask such dopey questions, Chris, but I'll go anyway. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Try and explain to me in, in words that I will understand why it is gas that determines the marginal price of electricity rather than wind that determines the marginal price of electricity. Well, wind is free, right? You spend a lot building the wind farm and then once it's up there, yeah, there might be a little bit of extra wear and tear from running the turbines, but broadly speaking, it's it's free, right? Whenever there's wind, wind turbines will generally spin unless they've been given a you must stop now kind of order from National Grid, which does happen when there's too much wind around. But, you know, know, they they will spin. So at the margin, it's always in the UK or in Ireland, it's pretty much always a gas plant that that will be kind of setting the price. There are more batteries and stuff like that on the system. Now, there was a time in the past when you might have had more coal around, but still gas has generally been a, a, a bit more expensive than coal. Um, so yeah, it, it's generally gas. The price that we're all paying for our electricity in the UK, it's set by a combination these days of both government and the regulator. I know what I'm paying here sitting where I am sitting in the UK. And just before we came on air, I looked up what I would be paying if I was living in Dublin. And I looked up one of the major providers in Ireland of their unit price for electricity to the domestic customer and likewise for natural gas. And I was quite surprised, given what I thought would be quite different 
market regulatory structures and all the rest of it to find that almost to a decimal point, the prices for both domestic gas and domestic electricity in both jurisdictions was exactly the same. Would that surprise you? Not especially. I mean, the, the biggest determinant at the moment is like, from a policy perspective, how much subsidy respective governments are kind of throwing at the retail price. But in terms of the actual wholesale fundamentals, you know, the UK and Ireland are both kind of gas-driven markets. Pretty much all the gas in Ireland, well, not all of it, but most of it comes on a pipe from Scotland. So, you know, the wholesale kind of fundamentals will be relatively similar. Yeah, I wouldn't be too surprised by that. Okay. Again, something else that uh, I wouldn't have expected or something else that I actually got wrong. My expectation was wrong. Broadening the discussion out to where this is all going. um, One of the things that happened over the weekend was the UK signed up, I don't know whether you saw this, to, to a new cooperation agreement in the North Sea for wind generation. This was a memorandum of understanding issued by the Department of Energy and its aim is to increase the amount of energy produced by wind in the UK through offshore wind by a factor of five between now and 2030. Is that feasible, do you think? Yes. Is, is this the agreement with the continental European countries that yes. you're referring to? Yeah. So there's some extra friction in there because of Brexit, but hopefully that's now going to be kind of... Well, that was one of the surprises of this agreement is that it looks like cooperation because one of the parties to this MOU is, is Brussels itself. Ireland is part of this agreement. It was the North Sea something cooperation area or something like that. And it looks like in a peculiar way, in a perhaps even an unexpected way, the UK getting a wee bit closer to Europe, at least in terms of wind power generation. So for those, uh, I've no idea what your Brexit views are or were, but for those of us that have been staunchly anti-Brexit all our lives, I saw this in a very small way as, as, as a good sign. But I'm more interested in the, in the, not just the theoretical feasibility of a, increasing UK wind power, because UK, UK is one of the leaders in Europe. I know that Germany and Denmark are, are there as well. But in terms of actual absolute amounts or proportionate amounts of total energy, wind is a big deal in the UK or has been until um, they stopped building onshore wind. But to increase it by a factor of five from an engineering technological perspective, as opposed to the theoretical perspective, I know there's enough wind in the North Sea or around these islands to scale up in that way. But do you think that we are capable of undertaking that kind of investment on that kind of timescale to deliver in the way that they want to? Personally, I think it can be done. Um, I think that the kind of integration kind of challenge from it is going to be that there will be periods when it's very windy and we're going to have more power than we know what to do with. And there are going to be periods when it's less windy and we're going to have to think about storage, think about more flexibility in cutting down industrial usage and, and things like that in those kind of gaps. Like That's kind of the, the challenge. Like I'm sure there are going to be challenges, supply chain, you know, having enough engineers, having the right materials. What, one of the things that strikes me about that is that I looked at the data in 2021, China, which we think of as a big polluter, a big emitter of CO2, and it opens a lot of coal-fired power stations to the present day, almost every day, built more offshore wind in one year than the entire world had done in the previous 10. So they are, they're, they're getting into this renewable space very quickly, as the Chinese do. That's, why, that's where I'm going with this thought process about logistics or the practical aspects of the UK scaling up its offshore wind and also 
The Irish want to scale up their offshore wind in, in similar fashion by 2030 in order to meet all of the, the targets, the mandated targets that these countries have set themselves. We've had in recent weeks the very misnamed act, act in the United States called the Inflation Reduction Act, which has got Brussels very exercised because contained within that Inflation Reduction Act has got an awful lot of stuff that's got nothing to do with inflation and an awful lot of things to do with renewables. There's an awful lot of tax incentives, subsidies for various aspects in the renewable space. It includes things like batteries, electric vehicles, and it builds on something the Biden administration had announced previously to that act, which is a huge scaling up of offshore wind in the United States. So when I look at what's happening in the US, or at least what is being promised in the US, what is actually happening in China, and this huge ambition to, to upscale in offshore wind in the UK and elsewhere in Europe, including Ireland, is all the kit or all the engineers, is, is, is all the interconnectors. There's going to be supply chains, uh, worries, if not cost pressures, at least. Everybody is suddenly starting to think, hello, we've really got to get serious about this. Do you, and my question, I know it's almost impossible to answer. I suspect that one of the things that we might see as a result of this, and I'd be interested in your perspective on this, is that we've gotten very used to year by year, almost exponential cost falls in the production of alternative energy, particularly solar, but also for wind. Do you think that the fact that everybody is now going to go for it, or at least say they're going to go for it, might lead to the end of these cost reductions? A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I, th I think the main, the main thing for Europe, right, it's a massive handicap compared to the U.S. because you know, our gas price is much higher. That That's kind of the starting point for the kind of tension over the Inflation Reduction Act, in, in my view, like, you know, um, and, and a lot of the gas that we're going to hope on getting in Europe, we're going to be importing from the US alongside Qatar and Australia and other places. But but that that's kind of the starting point for that. Like, are there reductions in, you know, scale efficiencies with building out more renewables. Absolutely, I'm sure. You know, we've seen some big reductions in some of it, but there are some others that are really not very well developed yet. Like heat pumps would be a, a good example of that. You know, you're still kind of looking at five, ten, maybe fifteen thousand pounds euros to to you know redo a retrofit a kind of 50 year old house. Like that's expected to come down. Solar PV, that, that's more kind of linked to the price of silicon um, and where you're manufacturing it and things like that. I think in terms of the kind of logistics and the supply chain, I think that's quite, I think we've been burnt a few times in the past, actually, and we probably need to look at the last couple of decades to learn a bit about that. Like if you look at France in the 80s and 90s, they built like kind of two nuclear reactors a year, which is kind of a the consequence of 
you know, their response to the 70s fuel shocks. You know, they decided we're going to go nuclear, we're going to go really big. And in the 80s and 90s, EDF was, you know, knocking out two reactors a year. They got to kind of 2000 and suddenly their grid was saturated. They stopped building nuclear reactors and they broadly have, well, they haven't commissioned one since. So, you know, the French haven't commissioned a new nuclear reactor for 20 years. And then, you know, if, if, if that's what happens, you start to lose the expertise and the engineers and people, they start to drift off. And if you want to come back and put your foot on the accelerator, it actually gets harder. Now, in the UK, we had a similar kind of stop-start approach with wind and solar. In the first half, or during the coalition period, 2010, 2015, there were a lot of subsidies available to install solar and wind. Those kind of ended like practically with a cliff edge overnight. And there were a whole bunch of people who worked in that industry and that supply chain who felt rather burnt about it. Now, notwithstanding the windfall tax and other kind of like policy threats, um, are a little bit reluctant to kind of go in, you know, go back to the coalface and, and start, you know, delivering those projects again. So, yeah, I think, you know, obviously I'd like to see offshore wind built as quickly as possible in the North Sea, but doing it right and not, and not kind of doing it unsustainably is probably important as well, because, you know, if the UK and Denmark and, and the Germans can kind of do that right, then they can probably then go and sell and implement that technology in, in other bits of sea, whether it's in Europe or elsewhere in the world. Are you optimistic so, about storage, technological progress that we'll, we'll get there, batteries, etc.? I'm not an expert on the world's resources of lithium, but I think at some point they're a little bit strained. There's lots of other kind of ideas for storage. You know, hydrogen is one. I'm certainly not a fan of putting hydrogen in in homes. I certainly wouldn't want it in my home or in my neighbor's home. Um, But I think at grid industrial level, that that might work to an extent. It would be expensive. There's all sorts of other kind of chemical storage ideas under consideration, you know, melting salt, compressed air in kind of salt caverns, things like that. The challenge in Europe will probably be, you you know, think you know, the weather today, it's the 19th of December, it's 13 degrees. On Friday, it was minus three, right? That the challenge for our bit of northwestern Europe will be managing between the weeks and the winter when it's cold, mild, wet, windy. We have lots of energy and don't need much for heating. And the kind of opposite of that called the Dunkelflauter, which is when it's cold, grey, there's no solar, very little wind, and there's very high demand for heating, which is by far and away our biggest demand for energy. Um, in northwestern Europe. The low-hanging fruit are things like, you know, uh, household insulation, reforming planning so it's easier to build wind farms, solar farms, transmission cables. Like, you know, that's a problem in lots of countries. It's a problem in the UK. It's a problem in Ireland. It's a problem in Germany. Kind of making it easier to kind of do it. Because, Because there's a lot of people in the jigsaw, investors that need to have confidence in order to make the investments, you know. You've got the grid company that's got to build new cables to northern Germany or Scotland or between the north and south of Ireland. And then you've got the the project investors that are going to build the wind farms or solar farms or whatever. Everyone kind of needs to have confidence in that process. It strikes Um, me that that screams government intervention or government leadership or both. It has to be consistent. And it also screams that we have to take on vested interests, that we have to take on the NIMBYs and that we have to say, sorry, you're going to have a wind farm near you and uh, get over it, try and see the bright side that you might think they're ugly things, but choose to think of them as beautiful windmills uh, in, the, in that sort of thing. Uh, but I do know that in both jurisdictions, UK and Ireland, that the, the mere hint of a 
uh, wind farm or indeed a solar farm anywhere near you produces serial objections. I think it was the Danish energy minister earlier this year in the summer said that Europe as a whole has this problem. And he said that uh, in his country, or maybe it was a comment about Europe as a whole, that uh, from start to end of just the planning process now for a wind farm is nine years on average, um, which is ridiculous. If, if you think if it's true, then it is just just nonsense. So th there are clearly political as well as engineering challenges to this ambition to scale up by at least a factor of five by 2030. But it strikes me that we have no choice. Given what has happened to the gas price as a result of war, given all of the environmental considerations, which of course are very well rehearsed and very well established, we have no choice. Would you, would you agree? Yeah, I mean, I think it's politics versus economics, you know, the national kind of and, and, and long term versus short term, you know, like you know, the long term interest of the UK or Ireland or Denmark or wherever is is to build onshore wind for the time being. You know, we might with fission work out in 30 years time, we can pull them all down upside like, you know, that would be great in a sense. But yeah, the, the problem is local councils. You know, the, if you look at the demographics of countries, you've got young people in cities that are quite clued up and, and on, on average more interested in these things. I, I'm sure you're an exception, um, Chris, but there are quite a lot of people of a, a slightly older generation that probably dominate local councils and, you know, don't want their view spoiling from their cottage, don't want the construction traffic. And, and it's, yeah, it, it, it's pursuing the kind of common interest and in, in driving those things through. You know, when I, there, when there, I drive through this country and see wind farms at the, on the top of mountains or wherever they are on the shoreline. Um, there's quite a few near where I am in, in the Bristol Channel. And when I drive, when you drive through France or Spain, where you see loads of these things, I think they're quite beautiful, actually. I, I think aesthetically, they're, they're, they're not at all objectionable. I, I genuinely, from that aesthetic point of view, don't understand the objections. I get the construction thing. I, that can, you know, if, if your neighbour is building an extension, it, it you know, there's nothing particularly nice about that, but it's it's time limited. I, I think that we should all be enlightened enough to understand this. That reminds me of something I was reading the other day from something called the World Energy Council, which uh, measures all sorts of different things and produces all sorts of different interesting metrics to do with energy security and, and all sorts of different numbers and, and, as I say, measurements. So one of the things that it bangs the drum about is energy literacy which I imagine something that, that you're quite interested in, and basically saying that there just isn't enough of it. And if we had more energy literacy, people who had spent a little bit of time thinking, reading and listening to experts like you about, about all of this kind of stuff, that we would uh, have more of an open door from a planning and regulatory point of view. Um, and I, I, I think I, I, would, I would certainly applaud that. Let me come to uh, back to where we started in a way, which is the price I'm paying, you're paying, and our listeners in Ireland are paying for their electricity and gas. In the UK, which is probably the market I know best as a consumer of gas and electricity, paying the bills that I'm paying now, I keep a close eye on the Dutch natural gas price, which seems to be the benchmark for what people look at. And it peaked at 350 euros per kilowatt hour back in the summer. And it's trading today at about 108. And that seems to be the contract that's mentioned most in the press. Tell me if, I, if there's another one I should be looking at. 
back in the day, it used to be the UK one, the MVP. But yes. yeah, these days it's the Dutch one, TTF. Yeah. Presumably coming down from 350 to today's price of about 108 is a good thing. Can I expect that to impact my electricity bills anytime soon or over the medium term? <laughs> the, the price for next winter is now higher than the price for this winter. That implies that there's of a risk there's, there's marginally a higher risk of problems next winter that you, and the reason for that is this summer the russians were still pumping gas into germany and where the big storages are and, and it was being filled up and we're not necessarily going to have that kind of comfort next 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 summer like we might we might not like it, it'll depend on you know how sunny it's going to be how much soda we can get um whether there's a lot of rain to recharge a lot of the alpine hydro plants that are quite low um, same applies to Norway. But yeah, 100 pounds a megawatt hour, 100 euros a megawatt hour for gas. A gas power plant is 50% efficient. Therefore, very rough rule of, rule of thumb, you know, to make power from gas is about 200, 220, 240. Roughly double it and add a bit, and you've got the cost of making power from gas. Contrast that with onshore wind, and you're looking at kind of more like 40 pounds, 40, 50 euros. For, yeah, a well cited kind of onshore wind farm so, so it's, roughly, a, it's a no-brainer build wind <laughs> i mean that yeah you know, yeah yeah at pain of like smashing my head against the the computer screen or the desk yes you can save a lot of money you can save a lot of imports if you're importing your gas from norway or qatar or the us or wherever it's money that's straight out of your gdp straight out of your government budget you know, at the moment they're even being subsidized bills are it, it's a no-brainer <laughs> Yeah. My final question, because we're coming up against our self-imposed time limits, is that I've noticed a debate amongst, I presume, economists that claim to know about these things. And the debate is best encapsulated between the front pages recently of The Economist newspaper and The Financial Times. The Economist, presumably taking its lead from things like you've just said about next winter's gas price being higher than it is at the moment, um, is saying precisely that next winter is going to be a real problem because we don't have the Russian supply. The reason why gas went to 350 euros a megawatt hour back in the summer because Germany was paying that to, to fill its storage. And it's just going to be awful next winter because, as you just said, Russia ain't going to be there. The Financial Times, and in particular, one economist there, their economics editor, a guy called Chris Giles, really Economics 101 has looked at what has actually happened to consumption of energy around Europe and noticed that using Economics 101 jargon, that there appear to be both substitution and income effects going on. People are responding. It isn't static in the way that some energy consultants and the economists seem to think that supply and where we know what the supply of gas is going to be, but the, the thing that's happening that's really interesting in ways that weren't forecast is that people are reducing consumption, we know that, and are finding substitutes. We've talked about wind, but there are others as well. And it, so it's quite a contrast. Chris Giles at the FT is very optimistic that next winter will be okay. And The Economist is saying it's going to be catastrophic. I think going back to the energy literacy point, like one of the things people don't, most people don't know what kilowatt hour is, right? In the way that they know what a litre of petrol is. That means that things like bill tariff caps all get, you know, pricing you £2,000 a year, £3,000 a year. Now, underpinning each of those is an assumption about how much electricity or gas you're going to use. Now, the reality is everyone's using less because it's more expensive and it's the right thing to do. I, I've been tracking UK gas consumption and I think it's kind of 10, 20% down. Um, yeah, and that's that's heating buildings and hot water. It's a bit different in the power market. 
for reasons I won't go into, um, but not wants to necessarily worry about. But yeah, I, I think we can use less and people will walk down the street and see how many wood fires there are going. Compare that with last winter. There's all sorts of kind of substitution options there. Income effects. Yeah, I haven't heard that term for a long time, but I guess we're getting poorer. Or we'll use less, you know, we'll do less of the things that use more energy, whether that's fewer takeaways and restaurants and meals out and things like that. Or, yeah, like, I mean, that's that's a bit sad, but that's the reality of the world when you're importing gas from at high prices from other countries. So the message of today is just build out the alternatives. Just get on with it. Yeah. Yes. I hope for my 20 month old son's sake that that's what we do. Yes. <laughs> Is there anything that I should have asked you that I haven't? Policy design kind of questions. I was going to ask you about whether or not the reg- is the industry in any way gaming the regulator in the way that my industry, shall I say, used to. The financial services industry used to run rings around the regulator. I use the past tense in case anybody in that business is listening. But does that go on? Yeah, I, I, I think that's definitely an issue. You don't get paid well at the regulator. There's a revolving door with the companies that the, the energy minister changes every six months and is hardly ever someone who has a lot of expertise. It's generally not been seen as a big priority. I speak the UK on that. I couldn't necessarily say that for everywhere. But yeah, I think more of a policy focus on it from the government, you know, you know, having it up there with, you know, health and education and, you know, other priorities is probably one of the things we need. I suspect it will have to. The regulator is being gamed. That brings us right all the way back to where we started, which which suggests that maybe somebody somewhere might be making excess profits. Yeah, they 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 probably are. But, we, probably... but, but because of opacity in the reporting, we're not quite sure where. Would that be right? Yes. By intervening, there's always the risk of doing more harm than good. Ben, it's been a fantastic discussion. Could talk to you all day. But again, to thank you very, very much for coming on. Really, really much appreciated. Thank you. Pleasure. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms.